Welcome to The Fruit of Passion. I'm your host, Alejandro, also known as Hanoma online. Today's guest is Keegan Musser. Keegan is a software engineer at Amazon, where we were both participating in an amateur orchestra comprised by employees only. The orchestra plays classical music, but Keegan's formation comes from jazz. So we spoke about differences between jazz and classical music, being introduced to both worlds as an audience, being an aspiring composer, film music, and films in general as a hobby. This was the first time I did a recording in the same room with my guest, as opposed to a long distance call, and we had a microphone failure. Fortunately, I did a backup recording, but the backup was from a room microphone, which uh, unfortunately picks up some noises every now and then. So there, there's a hint of conversation coming from another room a few times. And there's also the sound of pipes um, <laughs> when the bathroom was running for a minute at some point. So I sincerely apologize for these problems, but this is only my third recording overall, and I will take the lesson in this learning experience of podcasting. So now I give you Keegan Musser. I'm here with Keegan Musser. Keegan, welcome to podcast. Thanks for coming. No problem. Thank uh, you for having me. This is an experiment for me because this is live, meaning we are in the same room recording mm -hmm. this. And I met Keegan when I was working for Amazon, and we were both part of the same orchestra, an employee orchestra. And so our common interest was music, or one of, one of the common interests mm -hmm. uh, at the time was music, and I wanted to invite you, because you seem very passionate about music in general, and you have this dual interest in jazz and classical music that is not so common, uh, so I wanted to start with that. How do you define jazz? How do you define classical music? Can, can you define that for, for the audience and, and tell what your interest is in, in each of them? Sure. I can define it, um, but it's probably not going to be <laughs> as good as Webster. So I guess um, jazz, for me, you can think of music as sort of a, uh, a language, if that's not the most cliche way to describe it ever. But, um, and you can think of classical as like reading a great speech by um, one of, one of the, the great orators of history. Um, you're concentrating very hard on the diction and, and the delivery, but the words you don't modify. Um, whereas jazz is more like improvising, like improv comedy or drama, if you like, because not all jazz has to be comedy. So it, basically you're using the same facility of language, but you're inventing phrases and uh, inventing a narrative. And because of that invention, the sophistication level that you can achieve on impromptu basis is not necessarily as high on a horizontal level as that of classical, which is very uh, horizontally composed. But the vertical complexity of jazz music is, is very significant because people pay a lot more attention to the chords and uh, the relationships between individual notes. So you, you did mention something that makes me wonder. In classical music, traditionally, you have sheet music. You have 
written music that musicians read, right? Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. reciting poetry. Unless you're a uh, professional pianist, in which case you just know, right? You just know the we, pieces. We we can differentiate, separate. You know, the soloists they usually mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Uh, they don't need the, the printed music. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a printed music, and and people are reading music just like you might read the newspaper or a book. Yeah. Or poetry when you mm -hmm. are reciting poetry, if you don't know it, if it's not in your memory. Yeah. But some jazz pieces are also like that, right? You can yeah. also write jazz. I mean, there's quite a few like pieces which I believe are born of improvisation, but then they're written down afterwards. Like if you have big band jazz pieces, the like the saxophone lines are written in such a way that they're basically they have been improvised, but they're they're it's sort of like when you're watching Rick and Morty, like. Justin Rowland is improvising the lines in the studio, but then the animators go back and they animate around it. So, like, it's not completely improvised because there's a lot of work that goes into the animation. But it's basically like you're writing down these solos that go against this chord structure, and then you write them down for a full uh, saxophone section and you harmonize them and stuff. So, like, I think it is fundamentally born of improvisation, though. Mm -hmm. I'm about to make a few enemies here. I've mm -hmm. never watched Rick and Morty. Ah! And, and, oh, sorry, I, I they're, even, they're probably I, peaked. <laughs> sorry, listeners. I, I don't even know what the nature of the, what the, what the cartoon mm. is about or what the story is about. We, we, we uh, can talk about that yeah, if you want. Yeah, well, we don't want to get any copyright <laughs> issues. We're going to strike from Cartoon Network, but those guys don't really uh, play traditionally with copyright, so yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, tell me a little about your jazz formation. When did you discover jazz and when did you decide, I kind of want to study this or play this instrument or that instrument? Like many of the uh, most important events in my life, it was not up to me at all. So I was playing a bassoon in my sixth grade band and my teacher was like, hey, Keegan, you can play a bassoon, so we need you to play another instrument that no one is playing, uh, bass guitar. So I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm playing bass guitar now. So, like, I picked it up, and, I don't know, maybe... Wait, wait, maybe, let me let me ask you. Yeah. Bassoon is a classical instrument. Right? Yeah. You don't find a bassoon in, in, uh, in a jazz band or... Yeah. or, or, or no, or I mean, pop. well, there's some jazz bassoonists. I mean, you can... It, it's an okay, there's some, like but clarinet it's, in the it's, sense that you can rare. with it, yeah. But I think it's, rare, it's more rare than clarinet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, how come they told you, just, we want to switch mm -hmm. you from this rare instrument, mm -hmm. which is probably a privilege to have, mm -hmm. to this more common one? Well, I kind of want to tread lightly with this because it's going to sound like I'm bragging. But when I when I started out in sixth grade, uh, it's like the first year of middle school, so a lot of people don't have experience with music yet. So what they do is they start out by trying you on a bunch of different instruments, like all the instruments in the um, in the concert band, since the, we didn't have an orchestra, it was a concert band. Mm -hmm. So... Um, some people tried out for like trumpet and like clarinet, and I, I tried out for one instrument after another, and I, I passed all of them. I passed every single one except for trumpet. So my teacher eventually had to step, and she's like, "All right, Keegan, you have to stop trying out." All right. So and so she and just the, figured the that teacher like, selected for you. Yeah, she's like, "Okay, so since you can basically play anything, we're gonna have you play this because no one else can play it." So so I played. That's how I got into playing bassoon, and she pretty much did the same thing for jazz, um, for for bass guitar, where it was a vacancy, and she had me fill it. 
Mm-hmm. So jazz, the jazz band was a separate band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't, I mean, even know about it for the first year. But then the second year, she's like, okay, in seventh grade, you're going to play jazz, you're going to play bass guitar. And I'm like, all right, well, how hard can it be? I have a talent for, for choosing the instruments which typically get the easiest written music, well, I guess, except for bassoon. But yeah, bass guitar, you could pretty much put a monkey on bass guitar and he could fake it through most jazz songs. So you were playing bass guitar by the age of 12? Yeah, something, something like that. Like that. I, and my, my question is, you stopped playing bassoon? No, I kept on playing bassoon until um, the end of high school. So like, I played bass, guitar, and bassoon all the way through. And since, like, I think that there was a more serious community in uh, in Florida for, like, uh, classical or, like, concert band. So for me, the most attractive thing was, like, being in the elite of, uh, of bassoon, not so much um, in jazz bass. But in college, uh, the first day I, I checked in the the music program they're like uh we don't have a bassoon to rent for you and i'm like okay i guess i'm uh, i guess my bassoon career is over since it's so expensive it, t- it costs like 190 dollars per month to rent and like tens of thousands of dollars to buy whereas at fender jazz days you can buy from buy even a, a entry-level bassoon you don't want an entry-level bassoon and at this point like i was like uh you know, you, you okay. Have, you were already past the level where, where yeah, you were already mm-hmm. past the level of an entry level instrument. Yeah, it, it, it makes a big difference if you play a plastic bassoon versus a wood bassoon. It's like there's there's a gold standard for bassoons, and if you go below that, it's like okay, so it's not acceptable. What what was the price at the time for not an entry level, but a level that was good for you? I mean, it's not like the price has totally changed. Because the complexity of making a bassoon is still significant because it's a very long instrument. There are lots of thumb keys, which is very, um, very difficult to make. And it's very difficult ergonomically because when you're moving your thumb all over the place, you routinely get like thumb cramps and stuff. So uh, the significant complexity and the wood constantly comes in contact with water, which, you know, is a standard issue for most instruments. But the size of the instrument multiplies the complexity of producing it. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, why it's in um, 10,000, okay. like at least. Yeah, I wanted to hear a number. Mm-hmm. I, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. That, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you can that's buy a, very a, least. A, a pretty, pretty decent mm-hmm. uh, violin, for example, for yeah. that price. I bought my bass for, like, 5,000. So, like, that's not as much. And, and your bass is probably fancy. I mean, it's... It's an acceptable, um, well, I mean, my, my string bass I bought for 5000 mm-hmm. My um, my five-string Lakeland uh, electric bass I bought for, like, no, 2000 And when I say I bought, I mean graduation present. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very nice one. Yeah. Um, can you walk me through these concepts that have always been um, weird to me because I, I learned these names in English as an adult, but I, I had different names in my native language. What What is the difference between a bass guitar, electric bass, uh, a string bass? Uh, what are all these names? And Gosh, um, I'm going to expose myself as a, as a tech newbie probably to some uh, audiophiles, but for as for my understanding, bass guitar is pretty much the same as electric bass. Uh, when people say bass guitar, they assume you're talking about electric bass. Um, no one ever says bass guitar and they're talking about um, a string bass because I think the word guitar signifies that it's a similar construction to the guitar and a string bass obviously is not. 
The string bass is either a three quarters or full size double bass. Interestingly, uh, full size basses, which are um, usually you buy a three quarter size bass for orchestral performances, but full basses are actually only played by like Yao Ming uh, size people, like people who are like giants. How how about these guitar shaped acoustic bass? With thick strings, but no mm. capsules, no electronics. Oh, you're referring to like acoustic basses? Yeah. I mean... Is that what you call them? Just acoustic bass? Yeah. I, I think that... Well, when we're talking about reading music, these are all um, like interoperable. You can all read the same pieces with, um, with bass guitar or string bass or electric bass or acoustic bass or fretless bass or <laughs> fretless... Uh, like sure, you, you can read the, the same music, but for example, I'm guessing here that the electric bass is tuned like a guitar, but the string bass for the orchestra is tuned more like in the by fifths, right? Like in the um, actually, the basses are all tuned the same way. That's the way. That's why you can play them the same. Okay. Like they're all tuned by fourths, um, going by fourths. bottom okay. to top. Uh, cellos are tuned from uh, tuned in fifths, like violas yeah. and violins, mm -hmm. right? So is this because the, the, I'm guessing the distances are way too big, right? So if you tune by fits, then you... you no, I'm not sure why it happens like that, but I assume it has to do with the first four strings of the, of the guitar, which are analogous to that of a bass. Mm. So, do, you, do you know the history? I'm, again, this no, is, this I, is I, me I guessing, history, yeah. and I do play a little violin, uh, so I'm, I'm just guessing that maybe these instruments were, were coming from different places, so I'm... Maybe if I majored in music history, I'd be the person that you want me to be. <laughs> or maybe if you just study the history of the instrument. Uh, yeah. Okay, I, so I, I don't in, I'm not interested in bass. I just play it. To just play it. No. Come on. Okay. Well, let, 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 let me jump to, to um, one of the reasons why it was so interesting to find a person with this kind of interest. At some point when I learned that you play jazz, that was like, oh wow, that's so cool. You know, you know, you play mm. double bass, which mm. is the name I know. Uh, or string bass and uh, you play jazz um, with this instrument which is really cool but then you told me yeah but I'm more interested in classical music mm -hmm. is that do you want to learn more classical music do you want to specialize I don't think you can reach the level of proficiency in classical performance or composition unless you know jazz but I think that classical music appeals to me more it's sort of like the difference between being an actor's um, movie fan or being a director's movie fan. You can achieve a higher level of, uh, I think that if you're looking for directors, uh, you typically are more interested in um, like filmographic concepts, whereas an actor, um, you're, you're looking at the performances and less the stuff behind the camera. I mean, the, Maybe yeah, that's yeah. a snobbish thing for a classical person. It might be a little. I mean, the analogy mm -hmm. uh, is that you can ask any people on the street, name me 10 actors and they will, they will give you names. Uh -huh. uh, name me two directors and it will be hard. <laughs> that's like super strange because like if you most of the conversations which dominate like I don't know online film criticism have to do with directors and they're like their quirks and stuff sure but you you mentioned film criticism uh -huh. which is a lot more formal than that your conversation at home mm -hmm. with your family about some movie well right? uh, unless you're talking with me and my brother then we're then then Both it can go into films? film criticism yeah Okay. <laughs> do, do you want to go there? What, what's your 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 film uh, tastes and preferences and well, directors? I typically, I mean, I'm not as much of an actor guy. I, I I like directors, 
and perhaps it's an adolescent quality, but I'm attracted to uh, directors with a pretty strong stamp. Like, I, I even defend M. Night Shyamalan, even though his writing abilities are changeable at best. Uh, but I, I typically, I guess, I like... I don't really discriminate in terms of genre. I'm willing to give anything a go as long as it's done well and with conviction. Um, yeah. Uh, I think you already know my favorite director is Guillermo del Toro. Mm. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. You, you have mentioned before mm. in some, some conversations. Any, any particular reason? Or? Well, I was thinking about it. And although his first, his top, like, my top five films don't contain his work, I think his stamp is, like, my favorite um, directorial stamp. Because it's, like, it's... It's very cine-literate and proficient um, in the way that someone like Nolan is, but it has a degree of warmth and humanity that, like, you see Nolan or, like, I don't know, like, Terry Gilliam lacks. So, yeah. b before going back to music, mm -hmm. give me two movies, your favorite movie emotionally and your favorite movie rationally or in terms of cinematography or, or just um, purest I think my, my favorite movie... Well, they're both Peter Jackson movies. <laughs> My favorite movie emotionally is, might be, hmm, that's a tough question. Favorite movie emotionally. I'm going to have to say, maybe they're not both Peter Jackson. Favorite movie emotionally is, is uh, Lord of the Rings or Heavenly Creatures. I'm going to go with both of those because there's something that Peter Jackson understands about the power of imagination. It's not just that, like, it can transport you. It's that, like, imagination has a danger and a vulnerability which can cause it to cut more deeply than the real world. Like, it's, a, it's an avenue towards uh, allowing you to experience emotions which bypasses your logical filter, which is the same way that I think music does, because you don't need to be speaking someone's language in order to be able to communicate them with music. You can go to a dive bar in Tokyo and play the same changes uh, and they'll understand what you're talking about perfectly. For the record, yeah. says the guy who speaks Japanese. But. I'm not not fluently. <laughs> okay, but, but I, <laughs> I will have a hard time in Tokyo. Yeah, no, I mean all the street signs are in uh, are in English. But to answer your other question, what's the, the logically the best uh, directed movie I've seen? Hmm. Well, I mean Lord of the Rings is incredibly proficiently directed too. But um, let me see. Uh, well, in terms of technical filmmaking, I mean, Nolan's very good. Um, his stuff is usually very airtight, but I think uh, David Lean, his stuff is good too. Like Bridge on the River Kwai is really intellectually stimulating. Um, well, I, I guess typically all my top five films are, are pretty emotionally driven, like uh, Lord of the Rings, Heavenly Creatures, Magnolia, um, The Babadook, and uh, uh, Brazil. Well, from Brazil, and they're all like they work on an emotional level more than an intellectual level. Yeah. What about you? My emotional favorite is Jurassic Park. Mm. Why that? Just like the swell of the John Williams score. Uh, maybe that's the reason. But I saw the movie when I was very young, uh, maybe twelve, something mm -hmm. like that. So I'm um, I'm not sure that. So I'm pretty sure I didn't rationalize it. The music. Mm -hmm. If it had an effect, it was an emotional effect. Uh -huh. So I, I, I really like the movie. Um, I like the new ones less and less, but I keep watching uh -huh. them. Oh, you mean the new Jurassic Park? Yeah, yeah, the new oh. Jurassic Parks. But I, I keep watching them because of the connection with the first. Uh -huh. one. Um, that's that's just the only reason. Mm -hmm. My, I don't know if I have a, like an intellectual or cinematography favorite, but mm -hmm. I, I think it would have to be. 
um, the Godfather. The Godfather. You're yeah. the, you're a Godfather guy. I'm, 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 not, a, I'm a Goodfellas guy. I'm not a okay. <laughs> I'm not a Godfather guy, and actually, I I, I think I mm. couldn't tell you many details, mm. but. I've watched the film a few times, and every time mm-hmm. it's like, oh wow, mm-hmm. oh wow, and mm-hmm. I, I I just don't watch it again the next day, mostly because it's too long. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like eating a huge steak, like you need yeah, an yeah, entire yeah. month yeah, to you, digest you need, it. You need to take a break, and I, I also consider, by the way, the parts one and two. I consider them mm-hmm. one movie. I don't know. I like I like part one better. I feel yeah. like. I don't know. There's this. There's the, the uh, lighting. Francis Ford Coppola's ability to light a scene, I think, is like I, I would give it the edge over Goodfellas, and I think it's better in part one than part two. But what, what I meant is, uh, I I don't think I have watched with that level of detail or, mm-hmm. or attention, but I meant when I watch one, I have to watch the second one mm-hmm. uh, pretty soon, and then I have yeah. to take a break. At least until Fredo. Until Fredo dies. Until uh, until the half half mm-hmm. of the intermission part. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like the fact that like they threw in the Vito origin story even though they didn't have to. The movie would have been twice as like twice as short mm-hmm. if they hadn't. But mm-hmm. you get like which is good for some people and bad for some mm-hmm. others. No, but it's I like don't. reading a novel. That's what um, Once Upon a Time in America feels like too. This is a Sergio Leone movie, which just kind of covers the same ground as The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in- interesting uh, to be sidetracked. Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't regret it. So, so uh, you seem to be speaking of passion. You seem mm. to be passionate about that. You, you know yeah. your names. You know your, your mm-hmm. You know the, the the trends that they have. Yeah. The, um, the techniques that they use, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so how how come you and you, know, you mentioned your brother too? So it, is it a family thing or do you do uh, I, I, your parents? You know, I think that the level of enthusiasm we have for movies is we got from our parents. When you like say my, we, my, is uh, your yeah, family or my, your... my my? I mean, my brother, sister, and I. The reason we're able to retain so much movie knowledge is that we sort of act as a like minority report trio. Me and my siblings, like we reinforce each other's knowledge of of lines and like scenes for movies. And also, I think that like all of our Christmas vacations involve just like sitting on the couch and watching like movie after another after another after another. Okay. Which I think like most of our influence came from our dad, but our mom likes movies too. So I think you will probably answer this with more than one movie. Can you mention any movie where you you, you can recite basically the whole script or most? Do of you it? want to make this entire podcast about movies instead? No, but uh, <laughs> I, I also had this situation where yeah. my dad would record VHS, mm-hmm. you know, like movies from TV. Mm-hmm. Um, every every Sunday afternoon, yeah. uh, the, some local channel would play some Disney movie or something. Mm-hmm. Or Jurassic Park. So after that, we would watch the same movie. Uh, after school, you know, I was mm. eight, so I, I would play the same movie again and again for, oh, for wow. weeks, um, to the point that I could. I think it. kids do that. Yeah, they, they like, a kid is like comforted by repetition. I think yeah. that's why you like rock them right? yeah. because like a kid like if you ask any. A couple of years ago, if you ask any father of of like a daughter, they had, they would watch Frozen. Over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, and, and they would have the soundtrack in, yeah. in, in the car. God, that's that the only CD so in the car would be, yeah. That movie is bad. <laughs> the, the, Fight the, the song is good. It's good. song is good. I don't think it's as good as... Uh, I don't think it's as good as the earlier one, which is uh, For the First Time in Forever. That's, okay. my, that's my favorite song in that movie. Mm-hmm. And also the movie from Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Uh, the music oh, the from that. Yeah. yeah. The music from yeah. that's really good, although yeah. it's not a good short. 
Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, uh, can you mention any movie that, that you, you might know a lot? Well, <laughs> there are lots of them. Lord of the Rings. I mean, like, Lord of the Rings is one, but it's the sort of thing where you're when you're watching it, there are lots of mental triggers which which allow you to remember lines. It's like when, when yeah. someone makes a certain body movement, like it, that triggers the line. And uh, if you're if you're watching it along, you can remember. It. But if you just are asked to recite it, just like cold in like a dark room, you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But like Lord of the Rings, I could do the original Star Wars, probably the prequels. If I'm being honest, because <laughs> even though they're not good in the traditional sense, they are quotable movies. Um, and there's also the uh, Jim Carrey's When the Grinch, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now you are making some enemies. <laughs> Look, I all right. I will watch. I will watch Phantom Menace any day over Force Awakens. Okay, you've officially made some enemies. Are you into soundtracks as much as you are into classical composers or, or jazz? Um, well, it depends. Like a lot of soundtracks sort of follow the same template. Like, well, when you look, when everyone talks about how Marvel movies don't have memorable soundtracks, uh, but I think in general a lot of movies. Um, they sort of, there are moments which are memorable, but in general, if you're listening to the soundtrack by itself, it's not designed to hold your attention as strongly as say, if you were, um, if you were listening to a classical piece, which I think limits their appeal. But if you have someone who's typically quite busy and uh, exuberant in his composition, like John Williams, uh, you'll be able to listen to the stuff. And also because he writes in terms of themes a lot. Right. I mean, that's why people listen to him a lot, because it's listenable themes. But if you listen to Hans Zimmer, for say, who's actually quite popular, uh, despite the fact that he doesn't have a lot of melodic content in his songs, um, yeah. it's not as uh, riveting for me as like a classical composer who's designed to follow you through a narrative experience uh, just through the music. So the, the, the way I've, I've read uh, the, the Hans Zimmer be described is as a texture yeah. composer or something like that. I think he deviated Whereas from it in John, some occasion, unlike Inception, that was actually pretty melodic. Of him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty melodic, but mm. again, there was a lot of texture in, in the sound, in uh-huh. the sound design of the movie anyway. But John Williams would be more of the motif, right? Yeah, yeah. So can you explain what a motif is? And, and because you also mentioned a classical composer would take mm-hmm. you through a narrative. Can yeah. you explain what you mean by that? I think the term leitmotif came into origin uh, with the composer Wagner. Uh, maybe it was before, but uh, Wagner, I, he composed I, I think for... it was before. I, I, at least I have this... Uh, I, I read some Beethoven, Beethoven um, mm. biography, and he was already using the word motif or, mm. or leitmotif okay. um, for the Fifth Symphony. And the the legend the legend mm. goes that, that he was made fun of you know mm. like, oh that's so simple you're just, uh-huh. you're, you're kidding right yeah yeah uh, it's, or, I mean or, or it was the last Beethoven has been has been criticized for not really being strong melodically mm-hmm. um, which is weird because uh, you you ask uh, you you ask common people without classical uh, music knowledge and they can still whistle or, yeah. or hum Beethoven uh, melodies but not but what else, other right? composers but, but you know I think that like Beethoven he's good at these tiny little ideas um, that he can form into symphonies but he's not someone like Tchaikovsky who can like just make a melody that lasts forever like what Beethoven's fifth movement one is just a repetition of the single like the same uh, four note theme over and over again and it recurs in the last movement but uh, yeah it's <laughs> 
I think as composed to Mozart, who was really into melodies, like Beethoven thoughts, phrases are, um, are pretty well known. You're talking to a Beethoven hater here, so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't want to give you that point. That's fine, but uh, please continue. You, you were saying yeah. Wagner or motifs yeah. in general. So, I mean, so I think a, motif? a motif is different than a leitmotif. A um, leitmotif is actually the um, leading motive. It uh, is a phrase of music which is designed to represent a particular character or um, concept. Mm -hmm. So, Wagner used it when he was composing, uh, I'm not a German speaker, so, the Ring de los... No, that's Spanish. The Nibelungenlied. Okay. Nibelungenlied. So the Ring Cycle, which is a cycle of four operas, which if any uh, opera house tries to put them on, they uh, they will fail because the operas are so long and expensive. But he uses um, the leading motifs to symbolize characters. Um, and this was later carried on uh, with great effectiveness by John Williams in, say, Star Wars. Like, if you hear, like, da ba ba bum in, in the first movie, you know that yeah. the Empire is going to be on screen. And uh, the Darth Vader theme, which is introduced in yeah. Empire Strikes Back, that's, you know, even though he's not on screen, you're going to see Darth Vader very soon. Yeah. So, like, it also represents, like, in Lord of the Rings was something else that used it. Like, if, if you start hearing, uh, like, the scene in Return of the King where... Uh, the lighting of the beacons happens, and the Gondor theme, like dun 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 dun, dun, dun it, it transitions seamlessly into the Rohan, the Rohan theme, theme, which is like da 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 da. Yeah, I mean, as as the beacons are, are yeah, as as you transition from Gondor to Rohan, yeah. 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 And there are many more examples in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's very so. Is this a uh, the motif or late motif is mm -hmm. very popular in, in soundtracks. Yes. And I, I want to ask, because I've, I've met this this um, attitude before from musicians, uh, that they say, well, film music is not really classical music, and they, they, they see film music as inferior somehow. There might be some snobbish attitude there, but why is it, and I think you, you You've found you you've met this attitude before. And why, why, why? Yeah, I've certainly met it. Um, you know, I think that emotionally, I can understand that reaction. But if you apply intellect to that uh, opinion, you'll see that it's it's very historically myopic, because uh, classical music was the popular music of the day, um, at least for the. Well, I have no idea what poor people were listening to. But people with any degree of money, they listen to, um, that's what they did. Uh, they listen to classical music. And when the piano became privatized and people started playing the piano on their own, that's where all this romantic music came in. So, I mean, it's not like composers are these rich people, right? They're, I mean, think, name how many composers died penniless. So you can't claim that classical music is this elite and I, film music I is I think it's everyone. easier to name the, the ones who died rich because yeah. it's only like uh -huh. a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, Haydn probably because he always kowtowed to the mm -hmm. like the the these like court like these court people even though his music was completely boring. <laughs> no, I actually like classical music, guys. Don't okay. worry. Okay, so when do you draw the line uh, for classical music? Because many people will know. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I've heard the word, the names Mozart and, mm -hmm. and Bach maybe, but they maybe they haven't heard the names Stravinsky. 
mm-hmm. or something more modern. Yeah. Where where do you think that line is? If you're talking to someone who uh, hasn't taken a music history class, you can pretty much call anything with violins classical, and that'll be fine. But if you talk to someone who actually has a music background, like there are all these different areas of music, and it's kind of like if you're talking to a geologist about a rock, you have to make sure to refer to it with the right historical period or else you're getting an earful. So, like, you have to go, you go from Baroque to classical to romantic to post-romantic to nationalistic to uh, early 20th century to, like, 12-tone to late 20th century, which is when film score started. And it's easier these days because there's so many genres, genres of music intermingling to mm-hmm. identify the era of a song by its content rather than when it was composed. Because, like, you have people writing, like, neoclassical stuff uh, right now. What what does what does it even mean? It just means classical, but written right now. Okay. And like a lot of okay. a lot of composers. I mean, so if you, you know. if you didn't know the composer, you would say, you wouldn't guess that this was written recently. Yeah. yeah. You, you could say this was written 250 years yeah. ago. It's using the principles of classical music. Okay. To make the parallel between film music and modern classical, I think there's a important difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for most of it. You can you can hum you can whistle um, yeah. um, um, film music score unless it's uh, a Marvel soundtrack unless it's a texture <laughs> soundtrack right that, that maybe you cannot really yeah. whistle but for for the most part there's melody yeah. but then when you listen to a contemporary quote unquote contemporary classical music yeah a lot of that is it's really an acquired taste yeah. you, you, it's really weird what's what's mm-hmm. happening there's no rhythm. There's no harmony in, in in some traditional sense. Something is sounds here and there. It's like ping pong. And yeah, it's yeah. very weird what's happening. They are trying different uh, sounds from their instruments by hitting with different parts of yeah. their body. And I think it's like postmodernism in in action because like basically anything ton- is valid. Yeah, tonality was was pretty much going out of style um, in the higher levels of music theory. Like Stravinsky, he was. He was one of the least tonal musicians to achieve huge popularity, but even he was still fundamentally tonal. When you have someone like Schoenberg, who's writing entire operas in like 12 tone, which is basically when you choose 12 of uh, the 12 tones in the octave in a random order, and you just um, use that to write melodies, it, it, it's the point where like it's it's more of an intellectual exercise than an actual listening experience because like you can appreciate what's happening, but you can't get into it. Mm-hmm. So for people who know a little about classical music, mm-hmm. they have to train, they have to learn intellectually to appreciate modern classical, right? Contemporary, mm-hmm. yeah. postmodern, whatever you want to call it. Uh, however, for people who don't know anything about classical music, mm-hmm. they they maybe they've heard classical music, you know, uh, as a background music in the mall or yeah. but, but something, but but they don't know how can they be introduced to the mm-hmm. to the world of classical music. Yeah. How, how I'm asking you to 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 think that is is it easy for for people that don't know classical music to be introduced to it? Um, well, I think it depends how it's introduced. Like my sister will not watch Doctor Who. I mean, I, I none of our family has seen Doctor Who, but my sister will not watch Doctor Who because all of her friends have just told her you have to watch Doctor Who it's the greatest show ever so it's basically an imposition at this point so she's taken against it to a huge degree mm. so there's there's an aspect of like how, how do you get someone uh, how do you make someone experience something they haven't experienced before you can either do it with imposition or you could do it with invitation 
So uh, ideally, the per- if you want to choose classical music for someone to listen to, you, sh- you want to know what type of music they like to listen to normally. And then you, f- you can find a classical piece which caters to that. I mean, it's no, you don't have to be a genius like classical music. You just have to um, appreciate beauty. And I think most people appreciate beauty unless they've completely been warped by the vicissitudes of fate. So all of that's fair, but I wanted to give you one situation that happens maybe too often. You have a person that's invited to a classical concert, mm-hmm. a new person. And they, they see the orchestra. It's the first time they see 80 people with this fancy mm-hmm. clothes and instruments and uh, some piece starts and let's say six or eight minutes later mm-hmm. uh, everybody stops mm-hmm. and no musician is moving and you have this desire of uh, applause you know like I have mm-hmm. to clap now yeah. and nobody's moving in the audience and mm-hmm. so it's really weird and I, I, I've actually seen people clap <laughs> and then you know what happens everybody is like really weird looks so that's that's very unwelcoming for new people yeah. and i think it happens a lot so there's there's a little subculture there you know mm-hmm. you have to know that you don't clap at the end of a movement but you have to know what a movement is mm-hmm. um well it's the same same kind of thing like what if you go to a, a rock concert and you're like you're not banging your head if you're just like a dead person in the crowd like people are going to be like start harshing our mood man like Interacting with music and interacting with a community are always two separate things. Like it, when you, when you like play a new game or you see a new movie, you're like, "Hey guys, I just saw this great movie. We already saw it two years ago. Where were you, nerd?" Like, but but in both cases, yeah. you know, in the rock concert or in the classical concert, if you're replacing the venue mm-hmm. with a, a stereo mm-hmm. and a CD and you listen to the rock group or or the orchestra. You are not constrained now by your reactions are not constrained, you know, by yeah. by the community around. But they're also not enforced by the community. Like also there's an element enforced. of like group psychology which can actually make you enjoy something you never heard before, mm-hmm. which is one of like one of the issues with classical music is basically it, the best time to go to a classical concert is when you've already heard and are familiar with the music. Mm-hmm. Before like, the yeah. venue, I would choose to inter- introduce someone to classical music is when they can walk away from the room. Because maybe you don't want to stop your whole day to listen to like a 20-minute piece of music, mm-hmm. and where you can pause it, and where you don't have a bunch of people, where where you can't cough, because there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot of cough holding in classical concerts, which yeah, at the at the end of a movement, for yeah. example, you mm-hmm. can you can hear. <laughs> I think it's almost like did some people get the memo that you're supposed to do this at the end of a movement? Like, am I the person who's wrong for not doing it? Yeah. Um, and the other the other situation that I've heard before, I've actually heard from from a classical musician. So this person plays uh, an instrument in the classical orchestra, uh-huh. and she told me, "I don't like when people go wearing a t-shirt to a concert." Yeah, and, and I said, "Like why? I mean, uh, is is that is that too bad?" And mm-hmm. uh, no, I mean they 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 should uh, uh, present themselves properly. And uh, mm-hmm. so what's properly? And she said, "Like you know, uh, basically some fancy formal clothes." And, and again, I found that attitude a little unwelcoming for new mm-hmm. people, right? Yeah, it is a little unwelcoming. But it's like the same thing as like a dinner party. I think there's an expectation if you like everyone, well, not everyone, actually. Um, it is ex- somehow expected of you in society for you, if you go to a dinner party, you have to dress nicely. And I think that uh, the same manners have been cultivated for classical concerts. But... It's just like a, 
it's a thing that's been built up around the culture, and that certainly is not very welcoming. I mean, part of the appeal of going to a classical concert for some people is that it's very exclusive. Like, in the absence of genuine enthusiasm for the music, the most the best thing you can do is to to foster elitism. Sure, because even if you if you even if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you can rest assured that you're doing something better than other people. Okay. Uh, is there anything analogous in jazz? Um, well... <laughs> you go to a jazz club, what kinds of clothes do you see, for example? There's, um, there's a similar elitism in jazz, actually. I, I have not met a classical, a classical musician as elitist as I have jazz musicians. Oh, really? I think that there's a very there's a much higher capacity for elitism in jazz because in jazz there is the heroism of being a starving artist added on to a genre of music that is not that popular. So not only are you um, doing something that no one understands, but you're doing it while poor. So there's an element of heroism in that, and I think yeah. that there's an element of like. But you're talking about the musicians. Yeah, uh, I'm talking about the audience, for example. The, the, I don't think the audience is that um, elite. Like only one of the one of the unique things about well, I don't think it's that unique, but I think that uh, jazz jazz more so than classical is targeted at jazz musicians because of the participatory element of uh, the synthesis of jazz. You, I think it is more for the musicians than classical is. Where classical is designed, you're, you're building this like box, this, this perfectly wrapped box to be unwrapped by anyone, even if, if it's a musician or just someone who likes music. Um, similar to movies, you don't need to know how to make movies in order to appreciate a movie. But jazz, I feel like you need to have a significant and deep understanding of music theory to actually, like some, you'll see some people at jazz concerts laughing because the people who are soloing Are, are riffing or quoting different people's solos or like playing a common like that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, I think the musicians cultivate an aspect of elitism, but um, just people who listen to jazz, um, no, I don't think it, it's like it, it originally, it originated as a blue collar type of music, like for, from the ground up. Mm. I guess classical sort of did, but yeah, um, jazz much more so in today's society. Mm -hmm. And with respect to the musicians, um, elite, culture yeah why is why is that what what does it happen well to um Or in, how in does nutshell, it... you gotta be smart to understand jazz man okay <laughs> is that is that what what happens is i think it happens? is because like music theory is pretty sophisticated but like jazz music theory is completely orthogonal to actual like like you, you don't have to be good at math to be good at music theory mm -hmm. like You have you have math prodigies and you have like music prodigies and you have chess prodigies. You can have chess prodigies who are completely useless at school. Mm -hmm. I think Bobby Fischer was like that actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the story I've heard before, uh, more than once, is that let's say you're a classical musician trained for years in your instrument, uh -huh. whether it's violin or let's say clarinet, something that is used in jazz, for example. Uh -huh. So you you've been playing for 20 years. And then you try to join a jazz band, and it's absolutely useless. You, you're, <laughs> you're just no good for that. Uh -huh. On the other hand, if you are a jazz musician that you, you learned as a teenager or something, you still, you, you've, you've played jazz for 20 years, it's way more likely that you will succeed in a classical setting. Yeah. Why is that? 
what's what's the difference in training or or what are the skills that are necessary in one that are just not present in the other you can still you can learn um the i have a dream speech by martin luther king without knowing english if it's taught to you phonetically you can recite it and if you're faking of an uh american english accent is good enough people will think you speak english but when people ask you to talk when people ask you what the weather is or where the how to get to main street you won't be able to synthesize the words in the language uh, i think it's the same way for some classical musicians to be able to successfully improvise uh, a jazz solo you have to understand that language and uh Classical is written in the same language as jazz. I mean, having come from jazz to a much more classical, uh, to a much more classical ensemble, which I'm in now, um, I can tell you that um, if you know jazz, there's a lot of the time where you don't even have to write, read the music in classical. It's based on the same chords um, and stuff. But if you're classical, you just have to read the notes. You don't have to read the music. At least the, the, the basic level of competency. If you look at like classical musicians like Yijia Wang, classical pianist, she um, I mean, she knows jazz, but she probably pursued that independently from just classical. So, why why is it that you have Yijia Wang or or Joshua Bell or Hilary Han, mm -hmm. the international? soloists mm -hmm. they can play any any concert written for their instrument mm -hmm. uh, and they play those extremely well but for example with some exceptions but they don't compose mm -hmm. but you have i don't know 150 or 200 years ago every not every but many of the world-class soloists they would they were composing their own mm -hmm. concerts and their own cadences right their own solo parts yeah and what what's What happened at, at what point that the training changed so that musicians don't compose anymore? Maybe it had to do with hyper-specialization. I mean, there are a whole lot more people around these days than there were before. Um, but I also think there's a whole lot more competition when it comes to music. Um, if you're, if you're a, a performer, you're on an international stage, and you're not just composing... Uh, you're not just competing with the people in your area anymore. Uh, now you're competing with everyone in the world. So I think it, not just in music, in, in almost every area, hyper-specialization is, is definitely favored. Like in the school system, um, that's one of the things that the school system, I think, mis-emphasizes uh, mis the, the need to be well-rounded, when in fact um, it's very easy to succeed in life if you're very good at one thing and you make money from that. Um, But even if you're good at one thing, You might be good in your high school, but mm. that tells you nothing of what your level will be uh, compared to your peers in university or, or a conservatory. Mm. Yeah. And even after succeeding, even if you go to Juilliard and you succeed, that tells you nothing about what you will do when you go to some international competition yeah. where you will have um, uh, 20 opponents from countries with a culture of discipline and, and, and more intense training, for example. Yeah. So, you, is your I don't know. Do, do you think it's a do you prefer the well-rounded approach or, or the the super specialized approach for music? All right, um, I'm gonna go. I'm I'm going outside areas which are my um, my expertise. So it may 
look a lot like someone talking about something they have no idea about. But I perceive that there is a there is a risk averse way to proceed through life, and there is a risky way. If you want to minimize the negative possible consequences, uh, the way to do it is to be competent at several things, so that one of those things will be inside the circle of things which are needed right now in the world. Um, I think it's there are lots of people who have said this, um, but the 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 best talents are ones that are needed by by the time a talent which can be used um, and is profitable like is the type of talent you want to cultivate so like but I mean there are people who have been incredible artists who I mean died penniless because their work was not needed at the time and like that that would be an example of an unsuccessful running of your life but it produced something great. So how can you judge the value of someone's life by whether they enjoyed it while they were living it? Mm. Interesting. So going back to this composer thing, mm -hmm. um, you've dabbled in composition, I understand? I think, um, I think I've done more than dabble. Mm -hmm. like, can, can you explain your journey? If Well, I started composing when I was in middle school. Um, I was always playing on piano, and I think eventually I got I got enough um, momentum at it that I actually wanted to get a composition program. Um, so so I raised money by like by washing cars and like mowing lawns to get Finale 2005, which is the composition program I still have today. So I should probably upgrade. But yeah, I wrote the um, my my teacher in middle school was probably the reason I became a musician. So she gave me the opportunity to write the spirit song for my middle school, so that like what was that? Was this? I wrote the spirit like the fight song. Okay. Like like the, the some schools have a fight song. Like if you look at colleges, they have fight songs. So I wrote the spirit song for for my middle school, and I like written a bunch of other little stuff. So like <laughs> that, like I I think I feel honestly. Um, I feel more connected to composition than I do performance. So like I play bass, but I think piano is more effective at expressing musical ideas because it's polyphonic. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that that's that's like a true way to bypass like the, the limits of skill and, and the range is just bigger. Yeah. So a lot of composers they either pick up guitar or piano so they can express their ideas polyphonically, mm -hmm. or they use a computer. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So I and I've. I have been attempting to compose at a more professional level recently, meaning that I've actually attempted to take my ideas and solidify them into full pieces, which is not a very easy thing to do, because uh, if you if your piece doesn't have an end, it, it cannot be reduced or, or judged. But you actually have to put yourself behind that before that judgment when you actually finish a piece. Do you think yeah. software has helped? or not? Do you think people feel that they can succeed without much musical training? Oh, definitely. Is They're that like, a good or a bad thing in your I think it's a good thing. I mean, there's this online music maker that I listen to, Siva Gunner. It's like a YouTube person, uh, a YouTube group of people who started out just like uh, 
taking the the images for like video game soundtracks and then changing the melodies to be like the Flintstones or something. But they've actually done some really cool stuff where they actually write their own music and like, but none of them like have really significant musical ability. They do it all through computers and stuff like that wouldn't be possible if they didn't uh, just use computer. So like you can, you can sort of like draw, like close the gate and say, Oh, you have to be a good musician to be able to compose. But those, I don't think they're completely related arts. Uh, but they're not related, but they will be, for example, they will be competing for, mm-hmm. let's say, uh, uh, some movie director wants a soundtrack, mm-hmm. and they will look uh, at a classical composer and one of these mm-hmm. interesting new yeah. new styles. It's not as, it's not as like, foolproof. You, you, you know what you're getting if you have someone who, like, oh, he perfectly plays, like, Prokofiev's Third Piano Concerto. He must know something about music. Like, so... <sighs> Yeah, risk is always harder to bet on, and uh, Hollywood is a business as well as an art form, so um, they probably, I mean, the the way that Hollywood composing typically works now is they get a previously written score, which is a temp score, and they place it against the music so they can, so the filmmaker can edit, and then the composer, they they work on it separately, and they finish the the music afterwards, and the composer, uh, well, the, the director fits the music to the movie in the way that the temp did. And a lot of composers don't like this because it basically takes away their power of authorship over their own music. Because they like just just make it more like this, just make it more like the temp score. Um, so so the temp score is still written by the same composer. No, the temp score is just like, for example, um, George Lucas when he was making Star Wars, he used like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Like you can see this directly in the Dune Sea scene where like C three PO and like R two D two are going against the Jawas. Like that's. That, that was tempt to Stravinsky. And they also use, like, um, Gustav Holst um, to, as the actual music they could edit to. And only later on did John Williams go in and fill in that stuff. Was this uh, Mars? Oh, yeah, Mars. <laughs> it had to be Mars. Yeah. But, of course, there's, like, other there's other musicians, um, there's other um, filmmakers who like to go completely without score. Um, because if you edit it without a score, uh, you know it will work if you put any music to it, I think the Cohen brothers do this a lot, and I know Nolan does too. Mm-hmm. So, um, educate me a little about composition. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between, let's say, we can we can come up with a whistle, a melody here yeah. in a minute, and we could we say that's a composition, or uh, what's the difference between, let's say, adding a guitar and a bass mm-hmm. for for a rock band? In, in in an hour and uh, between that and adding 20 instruments mm-hmm. for an orchestra for example it what? depends what your goal is i mean i think the reason the singer songwriters are dominated by like piano players and guitarists is that you have you don't have to spend all that time writing music for an orchestra you have the band with you at your fingertips and in your voice mm-hmm. you have the maximum amount of voices spoken for with just you i mean the the more people you add the more scheduling complexity you have the more difficulty in composition since you actually have to know how to orchestrate right but but you mentioned this word even in in let's say in uh, film composers they will have an orchestrator mm. right this is a third sometimes. party sometimes yeah when the budget <laughs> approves i don't know uh-huh. but but basically they can they can write on the computer or just mm. the piano and then the orchestrator will come up with all the little details you know oh, these are Mm. you know horns doing that part or yeah. whatever and and that's still 
a lot of work. Yeah, in I my, mean, uh, I, I, I might say that that it's actually they should get a co uh, co composer credit. That, right. Because like an orchestrator can do things with a piece of music you never thought were possible, which is why like I think that it's really important. I personally feel like it's cheating not to orchestrate your own music. But I can think that because I'm a hobbyist and not a professional. So how, how do you study orchestration? How do you study composition? I studied orchestration. I'm studying orchestration the same way that Quentin Tarantino learned how to be a filmmaker, just by listening. I mean, if you there's two different types of listening to music, just as there's like two different types of watching movies. You can watch as an observer, or you can be an active participant. So, like... If you put, like, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony on in the background, it'll play and you'll get, like, the emotional experience. But if you actually listen really hard vertically to what's happening and horizontally, then you'll start to hear, like, okay, like, this, this instrument's doubling this instrument. Um, like, he, he uses the, the symbol on this iteration of a phrase and not on this iteration of a phrase. Like, those tiny little differences. And maybe he voices it differently. Like, maybe he adds it a third above and then maybe he adds it a sixth below the next time. Like, those are super hard because you're not, they're almost not useful to listen to except in a composition context or if you're in a music analysis class, which almost no one is. Do you, do you go to concerts a lot? Uh, I mean, probably not. Not enough? Not enough. But I mean, like, the thing about music is you could just put it on listen to it anytime you don't need to go to a concert the, the reason i ask is actually what you are mentioning uh being able to distinguish this instrument is doubling here or there mm -hmm. um the listening experience is richer mm -hmm. in the in the theater where you can actually also see the musicians mm -hmm. so yeah. you you can see when they're getting ready okay here comes the, mm -hmm. the percussion because they're, they're most of the yeah. time they're maybe waiting but you can see them before mm -hmm. Um, That's why the best way to listen to classical music is to find a video which actually has the musicians on screen. Okay. Because then you can, like, not only... One of the things that I think you're talking about is that when you're... It's almost a complete, completely different experience because when you're watching an orchestra play on stage, you will catch counter melodies and lines you hadn't been concentrating on because you actually see them playing. And, I mean, I have gone... Mm -hmm. I've been going more recently to the Masterworks uh, season because I have a subscription. Mm -hmm. Um... But you're, like you're yeah. talking about the the Seattle Symphony. Yeah, the Seattle Symphony. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I, I probably don't go as much as a lot of people because I feel like being able to just be in my own space while I'm like making dinner, or, like baking or something, while listening to music. Like, you don't need to be in a, in a concert hall to get the experience. That's why, like, I think that the elitism and like snobbishness that comes with classical music it kind of just falls away if you actually like the music. Like, you don't need to put on airs if you just like the music. Mm -hmm. So, what what do you compose? Do you compose classical music? Do you compose mm -hmm. jazz melodies? Well, it's kind of shifted as, as my ensembles have shifted. So, it's really easy when you have uh, actual jazz combos. If you just write a melody and a chord structure underneath that, you, you have a piece. So, I wrote, like, quite a few of those in, in college. And like the, I think the best of them survived, um, and are on my SoundCloud, which I'll plug later. <laughs> so, um, so mostly, what what you call composing a jazz piece is saying the chords, 
the rhythms and maybe some melody? Well, you, you tend to come up with a melody first, but me, I tend to have a really detailed internal idea of what my songs are going to be. So I typically think of uh, melody, chords, and some hits, like some composed bits of like percussion or mm. like uh, horn hits and stuff. Um, so they tend to be a, a quite a bit busier than, than a lot of... Um, a lot of combo arrangements, just which is a good and bad thing, depending on which jazz musician you're you're getting advice from. Yeah, but uh, later later on, I've I you know I'm really interested in chip tunes and stuff, so I I've written a chip tune. I want to write another one, but since what was that? What what do you call a chip tune? A chip tune where you use eight bit sounds, like an eight bit um, tracker, okay, to like make music. But like I think my the pieces that have been able to hold my style most effectively are solo piano pieces mm -hmm. because like I don't have to compromise on length because when you're writing solo piano it doesn't take like a year to, to write out all the parts mm -hmm. so like that's why I've been able to write really long pieces but like as of recently I've decided to man up and and just start writing full orchestra pieces so like I I, I wrote one that like I finished in July and I know I'm trying to gestate ideas for another one I think I've already shown them to you Yeah. Like off the podcast, and I actually thought of like a first movement for one of the things I, I showed you before, and like what I what I was missing. Uh, typically, like I don't know, maybe you should cut me off because I'm going to start explaining what the symphony form is. No, that that's great. I, I just wanted to say this is one of the advantages of, of having software, right? Mm -hmm. You can basically play an orchestra in your computer. Mm -hmm. You don't need the money to hire a hundred yeah. people. But if you want it to sound good, you do. Of course. And that's what but, I'm going to do next. But but now, at least you have the, the draft. Mm -hmm. You can see, in, in which case, in this case, you can hear yeah. the draft, right? This is yes. your idea. And it's way more concrete than, yeah, I have the idea in my head. Mm -hmm. No, no, this is way more concrete. Yeah. Here you have an MP3. Unless you're Mozart. Unless you're some <laughs> Jacob Collier-ish type, yeah. you know, uh -huh. yeah. But but you, you have this idea that now you can you can publish, you know, in, in SoundCloud or something. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. What's um, what I wanted to ask? We will go back to the symphony form. We don't have to. No one. Um, we we can explain it briefly, but yeah. I, I wanted to ask: five years from now, mm -hmm. do you see, uh, or is it in your plans to have a piece played somewhere? Well, thankfully, there are lots of resources online where you can actually get your pieces played. So, I think that the piece that I happen to write is much too long. Um, For the ensemble, uh, for, for the ensemble I currently perform in to consider it, um, but there is an orchestra you can engage online that I've heard of, which can play your piece. Um, like if you pay pay them some amount, right? Of money. I think like they send you a ninety-nine dollar orchestra right? and stuff. Yeah. So I'm planning on like playing that because I, I don't want to put all this work to waste. Is that the one in LA? There's uh, yeah, LA they're LA. they're a film orchestra. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna engage that, and uh, so like any future compositions. I'm first, before I start actually writing out the next composition, I need to upgrade to a new version of software because I'm working on like a 13, 14-year-old version of software and the MIDI just sounds terrible. So first I'm going to see how like this, I think they call it the $99 orchestra. I see what quality of uh, recording they produce. I'm, I'm fine with various levels of quality because they're professionals, so they probably won't undershoot it too much. But then I'll see how it goes and I'll write more stuff. Yeah. And yeah, but I was asking, okay, so your answer is, yeah, I will pay for an orchestra, but are you planning to send your work to some competition or would you like to apply for some 
to get work commissioned to you or something. Yeah, I would. I need to get a website for that. Um, one of the things about doing it professionally is that you have to have a large amount of time set aside to be able to accept those requests. Um, yeah, and I'd like to do that, but I need to look into how long it's going to take because if you put something on Fiverr, like it's going to take you a long time, you have to sacrifice like nights and weekends. And honestly, I, I don't think I have, um, time for a big investment as, as much as like, okay, so let's say I have thought about, you know, quitting my job, moving to New York, getting like actually like studying composition, being professional that, but I mean, honestly, that's a, that's a big step. And I don't know if I have the ability to produce music at a professional speed yet, mm -hmm. but at least I can produce it at a professional quality. And if you're not able to sustain a, sustain a schedule, it's very unlikely you'll be able to get a, an orchestra to play your piece without some monetary involvement. Hmm. Yeah. But also you, you, well, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but you're also a software engineer like, like me. Mm -hmm. And we do have jobs that are well-paid, so you can um, mm -hmm. keep your hobbies and yeah. you don't have to worry too much about, you know, yeah. you, you, you don't have to be the starving musician. Yeah. And the you're, difference you're, is time. Like Starbucks apart from is a time, you're job. saying, yeah, moving to New York, uh, unless unless you, you do have uh, savings for living in New York for yeah. five years or, or more, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Right. Uh, so are you? Have you seriously considered that? I mean, or how seriously have you considered that? There are many courses available to a software engineer. You can get a job in many places with relative stability if you've reached a certain level of competence. So there are there are safety nets in a lot of places. But I've, I've heard it said, I think H3H3, a YouTuber, um, he's a popular YouTuber. I don't know, have you heard of him? H3H3D Productions? No. You gotta get on that. Um, so he basically said like, if I if I hadn't taken like a year off to like, to try this, like I never would have done it. So like, if you're thinking about doing something, just like try it. So like, I mean, I've, I know semi-seriously considered it. I haven't done a lot of research on it, but I mean, there's the option for that. I mean, it has to be New York. For um, you. I think that would be the most likely place, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of music places today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that I would get it truly hard. <laughs> probably wouldn't, but I mean, there's No, a but lot even of if you want private lessons, there are probably plenty of, of yeah. teachers there. Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna move soon, so I can still be a podcast guest. But we can do it uh, on the mm -hmm. phone. Yeah, uh, you from New York. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So uh, part of the question was: Let's say you get you get a phone call from the proms. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, we want to play a piece, uh, kick a masterpiece. Uh, yeah, w would you reconsider? And what would you have to leave behind? For example, would you quit your job for that, or is not that extreme? Or would you quit? hobbies or, or secondary activities? So I think that if I get a call from the proms, um, I would probably attempt to keep my job and fit that in but to other detriments in my schedule. There are things you can drop. There are always lots of things which you consider important that you can drop. Like you can stop working out for a little while. Sorry, but it can happen. Um, you can, you can, uh, have a box of goldfish that you eat for dinner a couple nights a week. Uh, that's possible. Um, but if it come, push comes to shove, um, you, I mean, what's the thing that I'd be willing to cut? I mean, 
I could come back to my job if things don't work out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe that would go. Hmm. That's still mm-hmm. probably more than most people would like to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But again, we are talking about a, a big passion here, and, and mm-hmm. the proms is probably a huge opportunity. Yeah, right? if, if it's the proms, then I've probably already got other people knocking on the door. Right, right. It's, it might be an extreme case, but it, even if it's not the problems, but some venues, if they request a piece from you, that's like a, a knock on the door. This is a career yeah. um, starting. Well, I think that Michael Giacchino got his big break because he was willing to stay up all night to write a piece for this person who came on knocking on his door. The difficulty in that is you don't know which of those opportunities are that type of door. Mm-hmm. You only have hindsight. So have you had any opportunity like that? Any, anybody? Um, I mean, no. There's so many musicians these days that really you have to be the one to reach out for it. And I'm not terribly business-minded, which is why I like, you know, I'm writing music as a hobby is also like a good thing because you have a lot of freedom and you don't have to worry about compromising on quality or someone else's vision. I mean, a lot of true artiste musicians can be more sensitive about that than career musicians who typically have to have their idea like dragged to the mud before they see it coming out on the other side. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think, uh, let, let's say you do this, let's say you move to New York, mm-hmm. um, what are the chances that you will get bored with the routine uh, and maybe, okay, this wasn't for me, is, it, is that a possibility? I mean, it's significant. There's like a, you're, like, I haven't. I'm not just thinking about this now, right? Like, there's a possibility. It's, I think you talked about this on a previous podcast that, like, you're very satisfied with your job. And I'm very satisfied with my job, mm. right? I think, um, I think the promise of millennials is that, like, you, you can do what you want to do and make a living off of it. I think there's a still, there's an element of that that we still haven't been weaned off of. Not that we should be weaned off of it, but I think that it's that urge which causes people to maybe consider, like, I can be a children's book author and make as much money as I do as a stockbroker. Like, there, there's that unrealistic element, but I mean, really, art itself is irrational. So the, the decision to crush an irrational dream um, versus to um, allow it is up to the individual person. And I'm quite a risk-averse person, so, I mean, there's a good chance I probably won't go through with something like that. But, um, you know, it is, it is something to consider. So how, how would you rate your passion for your job and your passion for music? Are there even? Um, I rate a passion for my job, well, on good days, it's probably, like, probably an eight. Normally, it's probably six or seven. Um, eight out of ten. Yeah. On good days. Mm-hmm. Normally, this is like five to six. Mm-hmm. Uh, music is a 10. It's a permanent 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least composing. Performing can, can go from like a, a seven to a nine. Mm-hmm. If it's a piece that I like, it's a nine. Composing, you do alone, right? Yes. You don't collaborate with other composers. Um, well, I collaborated with you <laughs> on the theme oh, yeah, for this yeah. podcast. Uh, I, I should have mentioned this uh, earlier. Keegan is the the author of the baseline of the, <laughs> the, the music, yeah. the short jingle for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, you did collaborate for a ten second piece. <laughs> so, but but in, in more serious work, you, you you work alone, right? Well, I think that it comes from uh, musicians that I trust. Uh, in in college, there were a couple musicians in the jazz band who I really respected, um, not just as. Uh, musicians, but as sort of composition partners. So, um, 
And, like, I'm friends with this guy who actually lives in New York, and he sends me stuff that he's written, and I send him mm-hmm. stuff that I've written, and, like, I really respect his ideas, so... And when I was in, in like, in high school, uh, I was in a metal band, and all of us had, like, had writing duties. But it's just a question of, like, if I've heard this person's stuff, do I trust them enough to, to like, be on the level that I'm working at? Because, like, I guess I'm a pretty... pretty critical and possessive of my music so i want to have someone who um understands it before i like collaborate with them <laughs> maybe that sounds kind of isolating and it, it, it probably is but that's why a lot of composers compose in isolation it probably is and and i, I don't really care the reason i was asking actually is is because it, there's a big difference you were saying composing is always 10 Mm. Um, and composing you do alone, yeah. but when you play with other people, you are constrained a little by by um, the abilities of the group and, yes. and, and whatever piece you are playing at the moment. Yeah, there's a whole level of filtering that has to go on. Like if your ensemble is not a, um, if your ensemble is at a different level than you, like whether they're high or lower, either you're holding them back or they're holding you back. Mm. Or if it's a piece that you're not choosing, then it's not your favorite piece, so you're not as enthusiastic. You like you will perform the best on a piece that you love. Like that's almost invariably true, unless you're a professional, in which case you have to mm-hmm. suck it up and, and play just as well if it's a piece you don't like. So yeah, there's that not that element of compromise when you're composing. You can make the pieces that you want to listen to, um, and if it's like I catch myself sometimes listening to music like by classical composers, I'm like oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. Like I, I think that I would have done this instead, mm-hmm. but like they're not me. So there's a point at which like what is the right thing to do, quote unquote is just um, commensurate with personal taste. So we, before we close, can you briefly explain what is a symphony and mm-hmm. this piece that you have, mm-hmm. are you planning to make it a movement in a symphony? Yeah. So um, a symphony, luckily I looked this up, a symphony is extended musical composition. Um, typically, well, uh, but not always. Mozart's first symphony was like 10 minutes long or something. Um, typically exists in four movements. The first movement is a um, is something called a sonata plan, which involves the exposition of a theme, an optional second exposition, a development of the ideas in the theme, and a recapitulation. The second movement is an adagio or an andante, which is like a slower movement, um, more mournful. The third movement is a scherzo, uh, which is which is a, like a fast dance. Like if you look at um, Tchaikovsky four movement uh, three. No, sorry, I'm thinking of Tchaikovsky 6, Movement 3. Um, but then, uh, optionally, the third movement is a minuet and trio, um, which is a, like a 3-4 uh, dance. And uh, Mozart favors those a lot. And the fourth movement is uh, a typically an allegro, like um, a faster movement, but I'm not as clear on the structure of that. Or it could also be like a rondo. But yeah, so they're typically longer pieces that allow someone to... Um, express big ideas in their music. Um, they, they last like an hour to an hour and a half usually as opposed to like individual pieces which can last like 10 minutes, like 15 minutes. So that's another reason they attract, they're attractive to me is that they're very long. <laughs> I like listening to long music. Mm. So jazz and classical music have this. Yeah, they're similar in that, that they're is, long. Yeah, yeah, that is that is uh, not present in, in pop yeah. music. Uh-huh. Uh, which actually, for for a lot of people, they they 
they see their next track in Spotify is four and a half minutes yeah. long, and that's already too much. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's like that. Most classical music, you'd be lucky if you found something under like seven minutes. Under seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, again, probably considered, well, it's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Unless so, you listen to prog rock all the time. Of course, but <laughs> yeah, but again, that's the exception. Yeah. So your your the, the the piece that you have in SoundCloud, and I think I'll I'll link that in the mm-hmm. in the podcast. Is it what movement is it? Well, actually, the piece that uh, the 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 piece that on um, I, I believe you're, is called Evergreen Waltz. Waltz. Um, it's not organized according to a symphony. It's actually a verse chorus. Um, it, it's organized like a pop song. Oh, it's, but you but you were saying that now you you are thinking of putting a first movement to that. Um, no, I'm thinking there, there's another piece which um, I showed you when I went to your office. Okay. Um, where where there's this um there's this really slow mournful idea that I was showing him, and. Uh, I, I realized I wasn't passionate about it, and the reason I wasn't passionate about it because it wasn't a first movement. Mm. It was a second movement. That was the mistake I made. So I have discovered the first movement to that thing that I showed you. Um, so what I'm, I think it's easier. I, I, as much as I love video game music, I think that I typically tend to compose more narrative stuff, and that lends itself to symphonies because symphonies are very narrative in form. They're much longer and are able to express ideas in, in sequence instead of marches, say, which are um, like if you look at jo- John Philip Sousa's like the Stars and Stripes Forever are constrained to like a single idea, like an A section and a B section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, final question, um, yeah. a more philosophical one. Again, because of a word that you said. Mm-hmm. Do you create music or do you discover music? Hmm. That's a good question. Offers me a wide possibility of pretentiousness. <laughs> um, you know, I think that maybe, I, I guess, on, on a basic level, I think of music as sort of like the particles in the universe. Like, every piece of music exists. A lot of them just haven't been written down. Like, everything that exists, someone has played before or heard before, we just haven't written it down, solidified. So I think it's like, you're piecing these things together. Like, you're discovering a, a skeleton on the beach, which, like, mm-hmm. ended up being like a, which might have been a leviathan. So I think that the creative aspect is more like curation. You're curating all these ideas that come to you from the ether and like put them together into a logical sequence. But all of those ideas existed on their own for hundreds of thousands of years, like transmitted mimetically until they came to you and they synthesized the piece that you're putting together. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, that's my final statement, Your Honor. Okay. Well, Keegan, thanks a lot for, for your time. Um, Thank you. I, I did bribe you with some uh, Chilean cake um, to come here yes, to record. It was a very effective bribe. And, and very cute cats as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My cats. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Um, I hope we, we get to repeat this, maybe talking about movies or some other. Oh, version. I'd love to. Once When the Oscars comes out or something. <laughs> oh, maybe after the Oscars. No, yeah. Actually, no. We need to wait for another year because this year was kind of light on uh, so, so, so too, too, too close we're too close to the discussion now but yeah. maybe, maybe with more time we can, we can talk about yeah. movies my interest in movies is not uh, I, I'm, I don't know names mm-hmm. as well as you do yeah. but it is something that I've always wanted to learn so mm-hmm. we, we, we can actually talk about that um, in, mm-hmm. some, in some future conversation yeah that'd be great okay thanks Keegan no thank you 
If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you visit hanoma.info slash podcast for more episodes. That's J-A-N-O-M-A dot info forward slash podcast. Until next time.